0: James Bond Japanese proverbs say Bird never make nest in bear tree Just a slight stiffness coming on Your cellos are studied various
1: I'm just up here at Oxford Brushing up on a little Danish
2: You know what I can do with my little finger
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 19. This is the nice and necessary podcast where we navigate the numerous novel narratives and nefarious nemeses of the notable naval commander, James Bond 007, naturally. Thank you very much for joining us in the Cubbyhole this week. As ever, your support is as strong as Pierce Brosnan's forehead when he headbutts the helicopter ejector seat in Goldeneye. As well as joining us in each episode, remember, you can also join us on social media. Let us know your thoughts on Bond. We have pages on Facebook and Instagram under our full show title, and on Twitter under the shorter moniker of More Cubby. So do get involved. We'd love to hear from you. We'd also love to receive your feedback as well on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. So if you've got time, do consider leaving us a review. Perhaps let us know what your favorite segments are, or perhaps your least favorite segments. I, I remember we did get one five star review uh, that uh, that said our bond quiz at the end of each episode was painful, which uh, I thought was quite funny, although maybe a little bit harsh. I mean, perhaps, maybe when Phil's doing it. But uh, in addition, if you'd like to uh, ask us a direct question or submit a discussion topic, do get in touch via email rogermoorescubbyhole at gmail.com and we'll do our best to read out your correspondence in our Q branch, i.e. questions branch, segment. Now, in our last episode, we discussed Bond number 18, Tomorrow Never Dies, a delicious entry into the franchise, a thrilling, explosive adventure for Bond, and some memorable performances, especially from Jonathan Price and Michelle Yeoh. It's uh, safe to say we've been rather impressed with Brosnan's Bond so far, so can he make it three out of three? Well, let's find out what's in the pipeline as we jump into Bond 19, The World Is Not Enough. With me to discuss, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who can push himself harder, longer than any normal man. And that is even when he doesn't have a bullet in his medulla oblongata. It's Adam the Anarchist. How are you, Adam?
3: very well thank you martin and thanks for giving away my political affiliations there incidentally the review you've picked up on this that did give us five stars but criticized the quizzes i do think that did come in the wake of our episode where the quiz was um car engine sizes from film to film so maybe actually it was uh, it was just that that was uh, given a bit of stick and uh, not the quizzes in general which obviously are first
1: rate uh, secondly and finally it's the man who watches the scenes of Judy Dench's M with an extra little erotic charge, despite his claims to the contrary. It's Phil. How are you, Phil?
2: Yes, very well, thank you, Martin. Um, just want to say again, we've had another great few shout outs on Twitter and Facebook this week. So just really quickly, thank you to Groovy Tony, Mark A. Altman, Jack Matelot and Ben Azuz on Twitter for your follows. Um, and thank you to Rob Tucker for your kind words on Facebook as well. Um, since the last few episodes, we've had a lot of positive feedback um, about Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies from fellow Bond fans. So Paul Martin on Facebook has mentioned that Tomorrow Never Dies was actually the first Bond movie that he went to at the cinema. That to Nicholas Shujak has also been in touch with us about GoldenEye. He was mentioning that he has great memories of the N64 video game, and obviously that was one of the first that he saw at the cinema as well. So that's just a few quick messages on Twitter. It was particularly um, heartening to hear from Nicholas, actually, because
3: he is Mr. GoldenEye. He's written the books all about GoldenEye, so great that he um, was sort of giving us a little bit of attention. So hello to Nicholas.
1: Before we move on to the first part, I wanted to uh, add in, if you remember last week, Uh, Adam and Phil you gave your favourite Roger Moore groan like given that we are Roger Moore's cubbyhole I feel like we should always have a bit of Roger Uh, and I I, I forgot to mention my favourite groan was uh, in a view to a kill when he's on the fire truck dangling from the ladder because it's kind of an extended groan like a
3: is that just before he whips off the top of that static caravan where two people are under the duvet together
1: I believe so yeah (laughs) I don't think we, uh, we don't really get that kind of uh, ridiculous comedy in the Brosnan era.
3: I don't know, we're getting pretty close with some of the puns in this one, so uh, I guess we'll hold that thought.
1: Okay, so I'll head over now to Adam and Alan. They're going to give us their film synopsis of The World Is Not Enough.
3: Yes, we are. So, The World is Not Enough, the 19th James Bond film, taking its title from the Bond family motto as given in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Directed by Michael Apted, this is Pierce Brosnan's third outing in the role, and it's the 17th and final appearance from Desmond Llewellyn in the role of Q. It's the last screenplay to be co-written by Bruce Firestein, who wrote the previous two Bond films, and the first to be co-written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who would go on to co-write all of the films from here on in. The film was released in November 1999. That's a full 11 years after Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin.
2: Then
0: maybe you shouldn't be living here!
3: The World Is Not Enough was made for $135 million, and it goes on to gross $361.8 million. Now, that beats GoldenEye's then record as the highest-grossing Bond film of all time, unadjusted for inflation. But critically, it was not so well-received as its predecessor. Indeed, it wins the Bond series its first Razzie Golden Raspberry Award. That went to Denise Richards for Worst Supporting Actress of the Year. So, to see why audiences and critics may have been so polarised by it, let's hand over to Alan.
0: Looking as smooth as ever, Pierce Bronn down the gum barrel. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Bond nicks a caseful full of dosh after harassing a sexy Spanish accountant. I'm sure your figures are perfectly rounded. But in London, the Moolah blows up M's old booty call, so Bond nicks Q's retirement battleship, goes after the Spanish accountant who's really an assassin, and, after a geographically challenged chase down the Thames, injures himself on the O2. Roll titles. Bond annoys Moneypenny by giving her a cigar dildo and shacking up with a naughty nurse, then teams up with Q to bully John Cleese. Ah yes, the legendary 007 wit, or at least half of it, Em's proper gutted about her booty call exploding, and sends Bond to look after his troublingly named daughter, Electra, who drives him round the twist by skiing well off-piste, gambling very badly, and lobbing ice cubes about all over the shop while they're in bed. Bond sneaks off to Boratland, where he meets extremely unlikely nuclear physicist Dr. Christmas Jones. Are you here for a reason, or are you just hoping for a glimmer? and zombified indestructible Captain Scarlet super-terrorist Renard, who nicks off with a bloody nuke. Sorry, Mr. Bond, but we're even. Soon you'll feel nothing at all. Meanwhile, M gets kidnapped by Electra, who was unsurprisingly a baddie all along, and two choppers take circular saw wrecking balls to Hagrid's caviar factory. The insurance company is never going to believe this. Bond, Christmas, and Hagrid go to Istanbul, where Hagrid's bodyguard, Goldie-looking chain, takes them to Electra, who goes full on psycho ex-girlfriend and straps Bond to a kinky ass and M chair. Hagrid shoots him loose before snuffing it. Bond shoots Electra and frees M, then crashes a nuclear sub and stops Renard blowing up the city by impaling him on his own golden flash Gordon rod. Then Bond goes festive Pontastic. I've always wanted to have Christmas in Turkey, and treats John Cleese to an eyeful. I was wrong about you. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. The end.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Adam and Alan. So the world is not enough. As we mentioned earlier, the uh, kind of critically mixed here, we've got, uh, personally, I felt like the cast list was uh, excellent, and we did have some excellent performances. I really particularly enjoyed uh, Sophie Marceau as Electra, uh, but then of course the flip side of that is we do get Denise Richards, who I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but uh, what did you reckon, Phil? Did uh, Did Bond live up to his family motto?
2: Well, from the outset, Martin, I would like to to say that. For me personally, this is not the best outing from the Pierce Brosnan series of films. I, I think that The World in Society of, it has issues, but overall, it's still quite a good film. I mean, it's, we are going to get on to the fact that, you know, Denise Richards is, is quite weak for me as a Bond woman, but I think that there are elements that are redeeming features. I think for me, Judy Dench gives a really great portrayal as M in this one. You know, I think it's great they brought back Robbie Coltrane as well. I personally I think that Robert Carlyle is a brilliant villain as Renard. I, I think they probably could have done more with him actually. But I can I, on the other side I can understand that this is probably one of those divisive films where, you know, Bomb fans aren't really that much of a fan of it because there are problems.
3: Yeah, this is the first Bond film I saw in the cinema when I was um, a bit too young to do so. So I've always got a little bit of affection for it. I think looking back, it's solid but unspectacular. Uh, and something of a missed opportunity, I'd say. It's an attempt to do a much more character-driven Bond film, actually. I think where it falls down is that the action we do get just isn't quite as frequent as it needs to be, and it's not as imaginative as it is in Certainly Tomorrow Never Dies and also Goldeneye, but the character drama side of it just never quite coheres into something really moving and different and radical and impressive. And I'm gonna get controversial because I think actually the reason that that doesn't pay off is Pierce Brosnan. I think his performance as Bond, whilst very good, he's still playing it as that more Sean Connery, Roger Moore style, invulnerable hero. But Brosnan never really gets under the skin of Bond in the way that George Lazenby did in Honor Majesty's Secret Service or Timothy Dalton did in his two films. And it needs, I think, more of that kind of performance to make that changing relationship between Bond and Electric King in this film really hit home.
2: No, I can understand where you're coming from, Adam. I I, I agree in in a sense that you know, Brosnan is he's, tr- he's trying to play it more like a Roger Moore style, um, you know, action adventure where you're going off to these exotic locations. That said, I I think that in terms of the film itself, I, I think they did do a few things right with it. I think that you know they were they did quite a good setup with, obviously, Electric King as the villain. In the end and obviously the fact that Renard is almost her, her right-hand man in that sense you know it's kind of it's who's playing off who in that idea so I think there are some clever points to it, but yeah I think it's it's maybe a little bit too mixed up to actually be effective.
1: I don't know I feel like I should defend Brosnan here I'm, I'm on his side here I'm not sure I don't know whether I agree with you I think Brosnan it's similar to his portrayals in Golden Eye and Tomorrow in Aberdeyes but that's why that's why I think it's good. I think he's getting comfortable. I don't know. Do you reckon that's why you're not so keen on it? He's maybe too comfortable in the way that he's playing it.
3: I think he is too comfortable in this one and and, and like we've said, I think he is playing it in a certain way but this script and this film has been planned in such a way that it's supposed to be a bit different. You look at the fact that Michael Apted has been brought in to direct who is very much an actor's director who is celebrated for bringing strong female performances out in the films he's done. So he's a director who's brought in to bring out that dramatic weight which is there in the material and it's there in how that character of Electra King is written. And so I think it's material that demands something else from from Brosnan as Bond in order to pull it off. And for me, he just doesn't quite get there. And we get nice little moments of him being emotionally compromised, again playing on the vulnerability that they build into rosnan's bond the fact that he's obviously physically injured as well from the opening sequence onwards and he's dealing with that throughout the film plus the fact that he has become too emotionally close to his charge what he needed to do was what roger moore did in for your eyes only which was alter his performance slightly to fit the new demands of the material obviously that being a very different film to the spy who loved me and moonraker
1: i just uh, i just remembered a memory came back to me about going to the cinema as well underage for this on Adam. I think, uh, I guess we were 10 years old when this one came out, and I, I suddenly remembered I was asked by the, the woman at the kiosk, asked me, Are you 12 years old? And I, I kind of looked very sheepishly down at my feet and said, Yeah. And I remember my dad was with me, and he, he knew at that moment I was not going to match uh, James Bond in terms of uh, espionage and uh, entering locations by lying. <laughs> Shall we? Shall we zero in on the the beginning? We usually talk about the uh, the pre-title sequence, and this was the the longest, still the longest pre-title sequence of any Bond film. I think it was quite a nice opening for the uh, the film. I think they changed it. It was originally just going to be that scene in the Swiss Bank, uh, but then they decided to add on the uh, the Thames chase as well. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's quite a decent opening. We get uh, lots of stump work which is excellent but uh, but I did quite like some little touches of uh, the water kind of splashing into his face we get some decent camera angles uh, of watching Bond as he's driving this speedboat um, we get him going underwater the little adjusting of the tie as well very Roger Moore-esque which I'm not averse to Brosnan can keep doing those little morisms as, as much as possible um, and uh, yeah I think it was quite a nice explosive finish as well ending at the Millennium Dome as it was um, which I guess was quite topical at the time people I think they deleted an M line in the film something like uh, at least the Millennium Dome is good for something was going to be M's line in the film (laughs) what did you guys reckon to the pre-title sequence
2: yeah I think it's a really good one the Thames boat chase is actually one of the very best parts of the film I think yeah the the drama that builds from that you know there's a elements of comedy obviously where Q is sort of shouting at bombs, and there's great moments of emotion as well obviously the fact that Robert King then sets off the bomb himself and obviously the the emotion that M then experiences after the title credits but no I I think that it, it blends that great mix that we've seen in previous films of the action, the drama and the sort of comedy moments and I think that was something that Brosnan really brought to his films. It was that, that Roger Moore essence.
3: Yeah, I mean, the rest of the film's action sequences sort of um, suffer a little bit because this is the opening sequence and it is, as you say quite rightly, it's the best action scene in the entire film. Uh, and credit again to Vic Armstrong, the second unit director, who would have put all of this incredibly complicated sequence together because, of course, they are filming in London. They are on the Thames. Uh, and it kind of, in a, it's the first of a couple of ways in which this film prefigures Skyfall, in a sense, in that it makes London the hero of a Bond film. And again, of course, Inspector, which concludes with the destruction of um, the old MI6 and with another sort of boat versus versus helicopter chase across the Thames. Uh, And you're quite right. It does very much put Brosnan squarely In the role of Roger Moore's successor. Let's not forget just how many boat chasers Roger Moore had. I mean starting with that epic one in Live and Let Die and then he gets them pretty much regularly throughout his seven films and we get it again actually in that um, later in the film we see the first ski action sequence in a Bond film since Roger Moore. I'm not entirely sure what Fish Q was thinking of catching with this boat um, he mentions it being his fishing boat for his retirement i don't know if he was going after great white sharks or killer whales or something i mean it seems a bit well equipped to be going after koi carp
1: i think he might be just annoyed after goldeneye putting those stinger missiles in the bmw completely useless they so thought well i'll put them in for myself for my own retirement
3: I hope he's worked out how to um, drive this boat better than he had the remote-controlled BMW in Tomorrow Never Dies. Otherwise, he's going to be clogging up canals all across Britain very, very soon.
1: Well, yeah, and talking of Q, this is his final appearance, obviously in the Bond franchise. What did we think to his final appearance? I think quite an emotional farewell. Although I don't know, kind of going down, sitting on a pool table is a bit of a weird end to his tenure. But uh, what did we think?
2: Yeah, for me, I'm always left for the sense of sadness with this film particularly because of the fact that um, when they were filming it had already been announced that Desmond Llewellyn would re- would leave the series at the end of filming and sadly he was killed just a few days after f- finishing his filming um, on set in a car crash. Brosnan and, and Llewellyn as their roles as, as Bond and Q they, they do have this probably the best of all the chemistry you know we've said before that um, Llewellyn, when he was in the role with kind of Roger Moore, there was elements where it was that relationship of almost a father-son relationship was coming out but it didn't really come to the fore until we saw it with Brosnan, I don't think and it was these three films Golden Eye, Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough where where we see that kind of that relationship blossom where it's sort of they're, they're kind of almost two old friends. I think that they they do do it justice with the fact that it again it does feel very final but obviously we've also got that suggestion of you know this is what the future will be obviously we get the comic relief with John Cleese coming in. So for me it's it is a it's finished with a sense of sadness but you've always kind of got those memories of Desmond Llewellyn as Q and for me he's always fondly remembered as Q.
3: Yeah, it is a very fitting uh, farewell scene, this, and, and great that they actually did write it into the films and that, um you know, they, they were able to bid a proper farewell to Desmond Llewellyn before he passed away. Uh, and it is a key line, that one, from Brosnan's Bond. You're not retiring anytime soon, are you? Because for the first time, I think, in the series, it hints at just how much Bond loves Q and just how dependent he has become upon Q. The relationships between Bond and Q have really changed through each um, era of Bond. I mean, at first, when it's Connery as Bond, they kind of don't like each other at all. You know, they're, they're a little bit irritated by each other. Bond doesn't like Q because he keeps lecturing him for hours on end and Q doesn't like Bond because he keeps tossing away all these gadgets that he slaves away on. And you're right, Phil, by the time we get the Brosnan and Desmond Llewellyn, they're very comradely because they're both these old dogs now. And of course, they now share each other's playful humor completely and Q's bought into the disposability of all his gadgets. He doesn't let John Cleese explain the puffer jacket at all. He just pulls the ribbon to send him uh, spiraling, rolling off down the floor. And so it's a great full circle that we've come to with those two characters. And yeah, Desmond Llewellyn and Anne Brosnan really nail that in this really lovely final scene.
0: You're not retiring anytime soon, are you? Now, pay attention, 007. I've always tried to teach you two things. First, never let them see you bleed. And the second? Always have an escape plan.
1: I think it's quite good that we get the transition to John Cleese, which obviously, as we know, in hindsight, didn't really work. And we've got a much better replacement for Desmond Llewellyn now in the Daniel Craig era. Uh, but I think it's probably, good, cause I don't think it would work uh, if we'd gone straight from Desmond Llewellyn to Ben Whishaw.
3: Yeah, I think Cleese was pretty perfect casting for the tone that um, they were taking with the gadgets and the character of Q/R at this point in time. My only problem with Cleese is, as you say, we only get in for two films. I'd have liked to have seen a bit more of him. Specifically, I think they should have brought him in as a background character in the late 70s Bond films when Cleese was at the peak of his Basil faulty mania. You know, it would have been great if in uh, the backgrounds in The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, you just see John Cleese almost as Basil faulty tearing around, smashing a spanish intern over the head with that decapitating silver platter you know that would have been great and also what was q's interview process that the person he decided is going to take over the construction of all gadgets for the british secret service is going to be basil faulty like who else um, who else went in for this was sharon the tea lady just not not qualified enough
2: i was about to say sharon the tea lady should have been given a chance considering how much she had to put up with in the uh, the earlier films, you know. I think she should have been given more of an opportunity to test herself as the new Q. I I
1: think I think she didn't get it because she'd left. She'd got a tribunal payment and, uh, <laughs> and left the job. Sexual harassment. I'm fully on board with your idea, though, Adam. We should uh, retroactively put John Cleese into the background of those films with an exploding Waldorf salad or a a kipper.
3: Yeah, like in The Kipper and the Corps, there's just one film where someone's accidentally died in Q Branch because one of the gadgets has gone off at the wrong time, and he's just in the background trying to get rid of his body so that M doesn't see it. I think sticking very briefly with uh, the MI6 Massive, I think one of my favourite scenes that we don't see in this film is um, presumably the humongous catfight that takes place outside the Renard briefing between Moneypenny and Dr Molly Warmflash. I would have just loved to have just heard just outside the room while they're talking about this very dangerous terrorist just the sound of this absolute slanging match EastEnders star going on between Moneypenny and Warmflash over Bond with Brosnan just giving a wry smile hearing all the muffled noise.
1: Yeah, he needs to keep, uh, keep that business to the Shrublands Clinic, doesn't he? don't bring it to the office
3: it's quite a catfighty film isn't it really i mean judy dench gives sophie marceau a right old slap later on as well nearly takes her face off i think judy dench is doing it with full bangles on that's with her ring hand
2: yeah this is one of the few films where we get sort of rage em where she's she's outraged by pretty much everything throughout the film yeah she's angry that her, her best mate's been killed and she's then angry that you know bonder's suggesting that uh, Electric King is the villain, and then she's actually angry with Electric King for kidnapping her. So this is one of the few films where Judy Dench's M is, is quite angry throughout, I
3: think. Yeah, and this is the second way in which this film is actually a really interesting precursor to what we achieve more successfully with Skyfall later down the line, the fact that M is actually in the foreground of the plot. She doesn't just send Bond on the mission. She's actively involved in it, you know, obviously, literally, as we go on and she's kidnapped but emotionally from the start, because it's her old friend who has has been murdered. Um, And like in Skyfall, it's a sense of M being haunted by a past mistake as well, a job that she did before, but got wrong and that the damage and the fallout from that has lingered and now it's come back to haunt her. Uh, And when she is captured, of course, we get to see a bit of M being quite resourceful when she rigs the um, the locator chip to the clock in the cell. Uh, So that I thought was all really good.
1: And indeed, yet again, another 00 agent who failed. 009 shot Renard in the face and doesn't kill him. Come on. Come on, M. Send Bond in the first time.
2: Well, well technically, less fair play to him. It's to the side of his head, which anybody else would have killed them. But obviously with Renard, he's this some kind of amazing superhuman who then, the fact that the bullet then enters, um, is, is our Blangarta that then makes him even stronger and more powerful than any person that's ever lived. So you know, this idea that supposedly this this supervillain that's already seemingly indestructible, he can get shot in the head and won't get killed, is
1: we're, um we're dealing in science facts as uh, as Cubby Broccoli would say. And <laughs> just like I get that he doesn't feel pain, but how could he be getting stronger every day?
3: <laughs> because he is literally Captain Scarlet we've got to stop the Mr. Rons. Is it also just the fact that it's Robert Carlyle and he is really hard and I wouldn't mess with him at all in real life? Maybe you could just shoot Robert Carlyle in the head and he'd be absolutely fine. He's like Sean Bean again in Goldeneye, falls 200 foot onto solid concrete and he's still actually alive at the end of it.
2: Yeah, and I want to actually mention, I think that Robert Carlyle brings a lot to this film. I I think as Reynard, I think he, he brings a certain sense of menace to it and he's, you know, he's, there's a ruthlessness to him. The, the vengeful brawn to um, you know Sophie Marceau's brains, if you like. What do you guys think? Do you think it's quite a good reveal that it's, you know, Electric King and Renard working together as, as kind of twin villains in this? Yeah, I think the...
1: I was quite impressed by Robert Carlyle as uh, Renard. Uh, if anything, I think I'd prefer him to be a villain, perhaps in a different film, uh, because we get Electra as the main villain, Uh, Whereas Renard is quite an interesting kind of plot point that he he can't feel any pain. Um, And we do get certain Sean Bean vibes, don't we, from him in the uh, kind of next, is it the Devil's Breath, that uh, the area that he pretends there's some Hindu pilgrimage, which doesn't exist, but uh, quite a menacing scene of him holding the, the scorching rocks and then killing the the fat goon and uh, scorching Davidov's hens. Uh, So yeah, I think I was quite impressed by Robert Carlyle's performance, but I maybe wanted to see a bit more of him. I understand why we didn't. Electra is the main villain, but uh, I think they could have done, we could have seen a bit more of him really.
3: Uh, we could have done, but I actually think in in terms of that bait and switch, the fact that you think he's the main villain, but ultimately he is but a henchman of the main villain. I think that works really well for me. And I think Robert Carlyle, because he's one of our finest actors anyway, he's the perfect guy to pull that off. Because when you first meet him in the Devil's Breath sequence, and then again in Kazakhstan, he has that sinister edge and that sense of being very Physically intimidating and cold and ruthless, that you totally buy him as the main villain. And yet, actually, when he comes face to face with Bond, what's more important than the physical side of it is how psychologically intimidating he is. He wraps Bond around his little finger, he compromises him, he has all this information on him, he says these things which he knows are going to needle Bond, like having broken Electra in for him. So, it's the psychological side of the character that Carlyle portrays really brilliantly. Which is why when he does switch and we see him with Electra, she's taunting him in those scenes. He is a psychological manipulator because he has learned from the master who has psychologically manipulated him. And Robert Carlyle pulls off that switch from being of the strongest, most dangerous character in the room to being this complete, fragile weakling who is at this woman's absolute beck and command. He handles that switch brilliantly without losing any of the sense of menace of the character.
2: Obviously, we, we get the big reveal that obviously Electra is actually the main villain of the piece um, later on in the film. But in the early stages, obviously, we, we're... The audience is made to feel that she is very much the victim she's the vulnerable um character of the piece that bond is there to protect personally from my point of view i think sophie marceau is brilliant in the film i think that her portrayal of electric king um is superb in terms of the delivery and um the gravitas that she brings to the role but what do you guys think
3: yeah, I, I think Marceau is is great. I think hers is, is, for me, the best performance in the film. Of course, the character on the page is fascinating, the fact that she is in the world of oil barons. And again, just like with the media world in Tomorrow Never Dies and with cyber terror in Goldeneye, uh, we're looking to a new place our megalomaniac Bond villains are coming from. It's not just political anymore. When they were pitching the script, the co-writers said that essentially what they wanted was for Bond to think that he had found Tracy, but then to discover that he'd actually found Blofeld in Electra. And of course, both of those characters are referenced in this. There's a line when um, Electra and Bond first converse, when she asks in point blank, have you ever lost anyone? And of course, Bond can't answer. And then later on, it turns out that to make her kidnapping look authentic, she has sliced off her earlobes. And of course, from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the Blofeld family, the De Beauchamps, do not have earlobes. Um, but yeah, I, I think Marceau is, is terrific. She nails both sides of that character. On the one hand, and in the early scenes in the film, that proud and headstrong, but also fragile and quite wayward heiress, um, which gradually develops into a femme fatale who is using sex not just as a physical uh, weapon in the sense that Xenia Onotop did, particularly in that torture scene at the end of the film, but also, as we've mentioned, in a psychological sense. She seduces Bond. She's the one who tempts him into bed. And, and he's trying to resist her for quite a long time. She's the one who gets under his skin and, of course, has completely sexually enslaved Renard at this point. Uh, and I think Marceau, in, in gradually stripping back the facade of that character to show the secret mania, I think she really does terrifically with that.
1: Yeah, I'd so say I'm most impressed by the fact that she's she's the main villain who's managed to pretty much hoodwink everyone in the film. Like you would, you might expect that she would be able to hoodwink Bond using her attractive charms, uh, but it's the fact that she has enslaved the other main villain, Renard, and she also tricks Emma as well through that family connection. I think Emma's uh, channelling Sir Freddy, isn't she? Too many family, too many personal issues in the workplace. But uh, anyway, (laughs) to Electra, uh, excellent by Sophie Marceau. Uh, And I think a couple of little scenes that really enhance her character. The first one, when they're in the avalanche and Bond has to use that uh, inflatable coat, and she's kind of hyperventilating inside. Uh, I think that really helps Bond, in his mind at least, she is a victim who is struggling in difficult circumstances, and that helps trick him uh, even further. And then uh, I quite liked at the end, when Bond is in the torture chair, just a little moment where Electra kind of gleefully smiles as she's running up the stairs. It's like she wanted Bond to escape the chair so that he would then chase her. Uh, and of course we do in previous films, villains put Bond into escapable situations and they're annoyed when he escapes. Uh, but this time she was, she's so sadistic and, uh, and villainous that she actually enjoys the chase. So a uh, really excellent character, I thought.
3: Yeah, I love that torture scene as well it's the first torture scene i think we've seen in bond films for a long time possibly not since moonraker and the centrifuge uh, sequence i guess but yet the fact that it is also laced with this um erotic kind of kinkiness and sophie marceau at this point has unleashed the full mania of the character she's vamping it up and it just gets more and more intense throughout the scene she's almost as on a top was with the machine gun at seven Ayer, she's almost high off the thrill of murder and death and of being pursued by all of these men who she's got wrapped around her little finger.
1: Yeah, a five million dollar ransom as well, in, which translated as three million pounds. you wouldn't, that's a great exchange rate. You wouldn't get that nowadays.. <laughs> So Christmas only comes once a year. It comes once every podcast, Christmas Jones. She's got such a bad reputation in this film, Denise Richards, that that personally I thought she was slightly better than I was expecting, but that's because my expectations were so very low. Kind of similar to the Stacey Sutton character in A View to a Killer felt just complete miscasting. I guess Denise Richard is not a dreadful actress, but uh, not really appropriate for this role, I don't think.
2: Well, I think going back to the Stacey Sutton comparison, I I think Denise Richard's role as Christmas Jones, she does at least try to do a bit more in this film when compared to Stacey Sutton. At At least she is trying to... There are elements of resourcefulness, to the character. Again, I think, as you say, Martin, I think perhaps casting Denise Richards was not necessarily a mistake, but I think that there were probably actors that were of, of around at that time that probably would have been a better fit for that role. Yes, the acting is very clunky and there are moments when it's very wooden as well, but I, I do maintain that in terms of the character itself, I think that they were trying to write her so that she was, you know, that traditional sense of the bond beauty, but also this idea that um you know she had resourcefulness and she had an ability to support. Bond when when he needed someone most.
3: Yeah, I think the Stacey-Sutton comparison from A View to a Kill is a key one, because as in that case, the character is actually, like you've said, very resourceful, very intelligent, and a bit of a breath of fresh air on paper. You know, Sutton was a leading geologist who was fighting off one of the world's richest, most psychotic people in this legal battle, pretty much single-handedly. And here, of course, we have a youthful, beautiful, female, um, you know, scientist who has risen to the top ranks of, of nuclear scientists. The problem we have is, and it's not a Talisa Soto problem, as in Licence to Kill, where the performance is just wooden straight down the line and completely expressionless. It's just that Denise Richards doesn't have the range, I think, as an actress to really pull that character off as written. I think also Richards is just a bit too young, really, to be in the role. It's fine to have a younger nuclear scientist who is at this level, but it does just seem like she's fresh out of college. And so it, it is just that she's a bit too young seeming, a bit too youthful. Um, to really convince in that role. But actually she's not helped by the script at all in that one of the great ironies in this role is that her main point of expertise is that she can deactivate nuclear weapons. And yet throughout the film from her introduction onwards, she is consistently thwarted in that attempt. Like, you know, she thinks she's gonna get to defuse a nuclear bomb in the pipeline. But it's not nuclear because someone's taken half the plutonium away. So it's just a normal bomb. And then later on the submarine, we know that they're going to put a, a rod of plutonium in the core. So this is it. She's got a chance to defuse a nuclear but bo- Oh, wait. Yeah, Bond's going to swim up and do it himself because Robert Carlyle's in there. So she's consistently prevented from doing the one thing that she seems to have been put in the film to do, which I, which I think doesn't do her any favours, really, in terms of making this a, a more believable and interesting and dynamic role.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Adam. And also she's, uh, again, science, fact and fiction being merged together in these Bond films. Six kilos of plutonium was the same as the Fat Man bomb uh, in Nagasaki. So uh, it is enough for a nuclear bomb. It would not turn into a normal bomb.
3: Maybe Denise Richards needs to go back to high school and uh, and learn that before she goes out to Kazakhstan having a tinker around with these bombs.
2: Do we think she was deserving of the Razzie, though? Do you think that was a little bit harsh? No, I
3: do think that's harsh, because like we've said, I think she's just miscast in the role. I don't think it's an actively bad performance. I think she's just been given a part that she should not be playing. Uh, So no, it'd be interesting to know who she was up against for the Razzie, actually.
1: Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones in Entrapment was one of the other (laughs) nominees.
3: I've got it up now. This is the year of wild, wild west, of course. Oh, God.
2: It's sort of Smith wha- and Salma Hayek. Wicked, 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 wild, wow, west. Oh,
3: guess who got worst supporting actor? Who? Ahmed Best for Jar Jar Binks.
2: <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's deserved. That's deserved. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I, yeah, I
1: was looking at the actress. Yeah, Denise Richards got the yeah. supporting actress, didn't she? Yeah.
2: Worst
3: actor Adam Sandler in Big Daddy. Worst actress was Heather Donahue in The Blair Witch Project. That hasn't aged well. She's really good in that. Yeah. Okay, who was she up against? Sophia Coppola in The Phantom Menace. I don't even remember her in that. Definitely The person who should have won that year was Kevin Kline in Drag in Wild Wild West. So no, Denise Richards was not a uh, deserving Very winner. Well, there were no matter- nom-
1: yeah, they were nominated for Best or Worst Screen Couple as well, Brosnan yeah. and Richards.
3: Along with Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta Jones okay. in Entrapment, Jake, Jake Lloyd and Natalie Portman in The Phantom Menace. But the winners, of course, Kevin Klein and Will Smith in Wickedy Wah Wah West. <laughs>
1: Moving on to Valentin zakowsky, a great return for Robbie Coltrane. I really do love his character. We get some and for, for me personally, I much prefer characters like this who do seem to serve a purpose in the plot line rather than having of course j w pepper we we love him in his own way, but he 's just comedy for the sake of comedy, whereas zukovsky is uh, he 's in the world of espionage he 's Technically, a bad guy who's helping Bond in these films in GoldenEye and uh, in the world is not enough. So, uh, what did we reckon to his uh, his impact in this film?
2: Yeah, I think it was great they brought him back, particularly because of the fact he seems more multifaceted in this one because he's not just helping Bond. Obviously, there's there's more to his actions than than first meets the eye. But I think that lends to this film. I think that there's you know Robbie Coltrane is brilliant in the role of Zakovsky. He brings a charm to the role, but there's also sort of a you know, a sort of a bit of a cheekiness to him. You know, there's there's great moments where they're at the caviar factory and Bond's BMW gets destroyed by the helicopter. And obviously, you know, Tchaikovsky gives this nice little grin that, you know, Bond isn't getting his own way with things. I think it lends to to add a bit more light relief to the film, you know, and I think that Robbie Coltrane does that brilliantly because Robbie Coltrane for me can can do that blend of comedy and, you know, really serious acting.
3: Yeah, that's all absolutely right. Um, I do like that uh, the character, sort of in another reference back to On Majesty's Secret Service, he's kind of transformed a bit more into marc Draco. He still has um, a lot of fingers in pies in the criminal underworld, uh, but he has kind of gone legit as well, or certainly more legit than he was in GoldenEye when he was kind of in that grotty, dingy club in St. Petersburg. He's moved up in the world now. And of course, that is reflected in his relationship with Bond. There's a lot more bond between them when they first meet. You know, Zukovsky's actually quite pleased to see him and of course remembering back to GoldenEye he was the main competitor in the criminal underworld with Janus, who Bond killed so of course that's why he's moved up in the world suddenly he's clearly moved in and he's massively reaped the financial benefit of, of what happened in GoldenEye so of course he likes Bond but you're also right Phil he, he very much takes over as the comedy relief in this film and as well as that great, that great little chuckle and smile he has when the BMW bites it he has some fantastic one-liners in this film later on when he calls Goldie a gold encrusted buffoon is another one of my favorites, so he has some lovely little moments of comedy throughout uh, throughout their interaction <laughs> oh and of course um his his reaction to Christmas Jones turning up in his in his office I'd better call security and congratulate them yeah, yeah. oh yes, I guess the other key thing to say about Tsikovsky, of course is is his death at the end of that torture scene because despite all the bonhomie despite the fact that he, he seems to quite like Bond now. There's a great tension to that moment when he just turns the walking stick gun on Bond's chair because we still at that moment don't quite know if with his last breath, he's going to take that final revenge on the man who gave him his limp. We don't know if he's going to shoot him or, or free him. So that's a lovely little freeze on there as well. And if, of course it comes after he's had that lovely little comedy moment of just machine gunning Goldie in the face. Well,
1: we might consider the true finale of the film, which is the, the ending, the Roger Moore ending of the, can you imagine if Q actually had that gadget of being able to look into very specific detail? I mean, that is an incredibly powerful satellite, isn't it? With the, with heat imaging as well.
3: Well, it's just very comforting to know that John Cleese is picking up right where Desmond Llewellyn left off in terms of being able to know exactly where and when and how James Bond is having sex. It, it continues Q's role as the pervert-in-chief at MI6. And
2: just by... I imagine the fire service, to an extent, would have... Uh... Heat radiation technology that they could obviously see people in buildings. I don't think they could see to that degree of accuracy. You know, if, if somebody was in bed.
1: Well, similar to Bond's glasses, of course. We haven't mentioned those. The the see, being able to see through clothing, but but not underwear. Not underwear. Obviously, our ten year old selves would have been rather too uh, <laughs> too young to see that. Can you swim? Yeah. Okay, so that brings us nicely to the gadgets and also the cars. So it's over to Phil. What did we have for this week?
2: Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So quite a few bits to get through this week. Um, obviously, this is kind of BMW's swan song in the series. This would be their last of three films with Pierce Brosnan. We've already mentioned in previous episodes, they kind of started with the rather lukewarm Z3 in GoldenEye, moved on to the rather staid and reserved um, 750IL executive saloon in Tomorrow Never Dies. But for this film, they wanted to go out with a bang, so they obviously featured the Z8 um, two-seater Roadster. Um, This was a hugely important car for BMW at this period of time. This is gonna compete with Ferrari, Porsche, Aston Martin. It was kind of seen as their flagship um, sports car for the 90s, so they were really riding a lot on this one um, in the film itself. Interestingly enough, the cars that were actually used in the film weren't BMW Z8s at all. The reason for this was that um, the roaster didn't actually launch until several months after production had finished. So the cars that you see in the film are actually kit car mock-ups that use Corvette engines. So these were never actually V8 uh, Z8s at all. Um, and the car that gets destroyed in the um, rather grisly scene at Zukavsky's, um caviar plant was actually just a mock-up model. The other vehicles that are really important in this film, we've kind of touched upon it a little bit already, but the Q-boat used at the very start of the film. Now, this was actually the brainchild of designer production designer Peter Lamont. So it was never intended for production. It was merely the um, sort of creation of the Bond production team. Now, the chase itself, as i have already mentioned, Vic Armstrong was instrumental in um, a second unit director in filming those sequences as we've already said a few of these boats are actually written off so there are still nine in existence but six of them were destroyed in filming incidentally this as we've already mentioned this was the longest um, title sequence for a bond film at 14 minutes and it took just over uh, three weeks of filming on the river thames so it's quite a long period of filming for the bond films in the actual sequence it was chasing a Sunseeker Superhawk 34 yacht so this is the first promotion that we see for Sunseeker. They will of course return in later films in Casino Royale and more of the Daniel Craig films. A little fun fact as well the Superhawk yacht is also seen in the UK version of the game show The Apprentice um, this is actually used as a reward for one of the winning teams um, in I believe the advertising task a few series ago where they get to go on the Sunseeker yachts and have a day on the Thames. So if you if you are a fan of The Apprentice, you may remember that. Um, just to go through a few of the other gadgets as well. So the other notable one is the Parahawk. This was used in the ski chase sequence. Um, again, not designed for any military or public consumption. It was basically designed by engineer and stunt pilot Trevor Engler. Um, And it was basically a fictional hybrid of a skidoo and a paraglider, which would have in the film is used by the Russian military. So this is powered by a 50 brake horsepower propeller at the rear of the, um, the vehicle. And the top speed by air was 26 miles an hour. And on land, it was 70 miles an hour. So that's just a very, very quick potted history of some of the cars and gadgets that were used in the film. And obviously, this is kind of the end of an era for BMW as it's their swan song in the franchise.
3: Phil, do you think BMW would have been entirely satisfied with their th- three film deal with the Bomb Producers? Because pretty much, it's only the BMW in Tomorrow Never Dies, which is really shown off in any major sense.
2: Yeah, it's it's difficult for BMW because you have to remember they they are a kind of a premium brand, so they would have wanted their their cars to be front and centre, which they are. But it it possibly was the fact that BMW were probably quite keen to market the car, but they were just happy to have the presence there. They didn't really necessarily matter that it wasn't used overly much. I do agree that the Z3 and the Z8 are largely not forgotten, but they, they don't really get much screen presence in terms of action sequences. They're just there to, to move Bond around almost. I think they, they probably got, from based on the sales from the cars, they probably were happy with, with the promotion of, um, of the three cars that they used.
1: But yeah, it does get sawn in half and doesn't explode. So uh, it's been much improved from uh, the early Bond films. <laughs> I, did, I quite like your little reference to The Apprentice as well, Phil. That was a nice link. Apparently there was another TV link. The guy who gets splashed by the speedboat, the Clampers. Apparently he was a real clamper who'd been in a kind of a documentary on the BBC. Um, and uh, he'd been told by the producers that he'd just get a little bit wet and he's absolutely soaked. So it's a real reaction from those clampers as Bond speeds past, which was also quite good.
2: Yeah, I, did. I forgot all about that actually. Uh, I, think it's, I think there was a TV series at the time called The Clampers or something along those lines. So they, they were invited to, to um, take part in the filming. Um, so it's quite interesting that they, they took that approach. But it is quite a little, funny little moment where they get sort of drenched by the speedboat
1: okay very good so we'll move over to adam now beyond the book what have we got beyond the written word adam
3: Well, this week we're going beyond Ian Fleming's written words specifically. Since *The World Is Not Enough* comes from Fleming's novel *On Her Majesty's Secret Service*, I thought it would be a good opportunity to dive into the Bond continuation novels. These were the ones written after Ian Fleming's death, but which still feature James Bond and are part of the whole Bond chronology. So the very first one comes only four years after his death in 1968. This is *Colonel Sun*, written by the great contemporary novelist Kingsley Amis under the pseudonym of Robert Markham, and this is a story in which M is kidnapped and Bond has to pursue the kidnappers to a Greek island accompanied by a Greek communist agent called Ariadne, where he uncovers a plot between uh, the Chinese colonel son of the title and a former Nazi called von Richter. And this is interesting in that uh, it inspires the films in numerous ways. Of course, uh, M is captured in The World is Not Enough, as in this novel. Uh, The villain of Die Another Day will be a Colonel Moon as opposed to a Colonel Sun. And indeed, a lot of the dialogue uh, from a torture scene late in this novel is pretty much lifted wholesale for the torture scene at Blofeld's hands in the later film Spectre. The next continuation novel is a strange one. It's written by John Pearson in 1973, and it's called James Bond's The Authorised Biography of 007, which posits that Bond was in fact a real person and that MI6 commissioned Fleming to write up his real-life adventures. And so this is a book which um, is framed as an interview with a now-retired James Bond living with Honey Rider, reflecting on uh, his own experiences as they really played out and indeed giving his reaction to the early Sean Connery films. Uh, the next two uh, continuation novels were both written by Christopher Woods. They were tie-ins to his screenplays for The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. The Spy Who Loved Me, a little bit different in book form. Uh, the Russians are Smirsh, as they were in Ian Fleming's original, as opposed to the KGB. And uh, in Moonraker, there is sadly no Dolly, no girlfriend for Jaws, and indeed no gondola in the sense that there is not a gondola that transforms into a hovercraft. Then between 1981 and 1996, John Gardner takes over to write 14 original James Bond novels plus tie-ins of Licence to Kill and Goldeneye. Uh, The first, uh, I'll just go through some of the more interesting ones. The first was Licence Renewed, which featured a female Q and the idea of a terrorist making off with a nuclear weapon and so would very much have influenced Renard in The World Is Not Enough. The next novel for special services featured the daughter of Felix Leiter, one Cedar Leiter, teaming up with Bond to defeat the daughter of Ernst Stavro Blofeld. In the later novel, Roll of Honor, Bond actually ends up joining Spectre, where he comes across a character called Jay Holy, described as a battle reenactment enthusiast and so possibly influenced Brad Whitaker in The Living Daylights. In the slightly more comic novel Win, Lose or Die, just as in For Your Eyes Only, we see Bond getting chummy with one Margaret Thatcher and indeed President George H. W. Bush at the same time. After Gardner, Raymond Benson takes over to write six novels and three short stories and three novelizations of Tomorrow Never Dies, which features much more of Wei Lin and the backstory of Elliot Carver. The World is Not Enough, in which uh, Electra King actually sings like a bird before uh, she dies, having been shot by Bond, and Die Another Day, in which he tries to add a bit of scientific explanation for some of the more outrageous gadgets, probably quite uselessly. Uh, The short stories by Benton are particularly interesting. His first blast from the past sees James Bond's son James Suzuki, uh, had with Kissy Suzuki in the novel You Only Live Twice, murdered by Irma Bunt, former girlfriend of Blofeld, setting off another revenge mission. There's also a Midsummer Night's Doom in which Bond meets Hugh Hefner and attends a party at the Playboy Mansion. Uh, Benson's era ends uh, in 2002 with The Man with the Red Tattoo, which sees Tiger Tanaka of You Only Live Twice return for another go-round with Bond. Uh, the next uh, novelization was Devil May Care, Sebastian Falk's um, centenary of Fleming's birth novelization, which is written as Ian Fleming and set in the 1960s, as were the other novels Solo, written by William Boyd and placing Bond in a fictionalised version of the Nigerian Civil War. And then Anthony Horowitz-White's 2, uh, Trigger Mortis, which is set just after Goldfinger and returns Pussy Galore to the action. And then Forever and a Day, a prequel to Casino Royale, in which Bond is tasked to discover how the former 007 died in order to retake his code name. Uh, then the other one is Carte Blanche, written by Jeffrey Deaver, which actually is a more contemporary Bond novel, situating Bond post 9-11 and sending him on a mission which requires him to delve into his parents' secret past as spies. Of course, the other two series to quickly mention are Charlie Higson's Young Bond series featuring a Bond growing up in the 1930s that began with Silverfin in 2005 and The Moneypenny Diaries, three books uh, written from the perspective of M's erstwhile secretary, Miss Moneypenny, written by Samantha Weinberg.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Adam. Yeah, quite a creative one where they're imagining Bond was a real person and he's looking back at his real life and looking back at the Connery films. Quite creative. I'm not sure how, maybe I'll have to check that one out sounds creative although quite difficult to pull off. Hugh Hefner as well I guess we've got the playboy link in the previous films haven't we you just killed James Bond is that who it was okay so we'll head over now to now I know you
2: now I know you oh no you're that secret agent that English secret
1: agent from England this is the segment where I take a look at some of the callbacks that we have in this film to the previous Bond films. So lots of little ones to run through. I'll go through some of my uh, favorite ones and we'll see if Adam and Phil have any others as well. So uh, we can start with, of course, the, the title, as we've mentioned, The World Is Not Enough, the family motto of Bond that we first see in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, we've, uh, some people have also pointed out the similarity between this storyline and Goldfinger, where both, uh, both films, we get a nuclear bomb that's central to the storyline, and it's going to be used by the villain to drive up the price of a certain resource and make the villain rich. In terms of the speedboat, we get in the pre-title sequence. It can go underwater, a uh, la Wet Nelly in The Spy Who Loved Me, and it can go on road, a the Bondola in Moonraker. Of course, it's the first time we're in Istanbul since From Russia With Love. Uh, also, Zakovsky in his operations room, apparently he has posters of some previous Bond girls in that room, but I didn't spot that when I was watching, but I have to go back and see if I can uh, can see them. Uh, we get uh, Goldie, of course, we've mentioned is the not so adequate replacement for Jaws, the metal teeth villain. We get a portrait of Bernard Lee in the headquarters in Scotland in the background behind Judy Denture's M. We also get a joke from Moneypenny about an engagement ring. Perhaps more time has passed now, so it's an acceptable joke to be made, not like the one in Diamonds Are Forever. We get some snowmobiles, of course, that uh, are on the the slopes of the mountain, and uh, it uses a parachute, the same as Bond uses the parachute in The Spy Who Loved Me to uh, escape death. But of course, Bond still gets the final, he gets the last laugh. And takes out the, uh, the parachute as well with his, uh, with his skis. And yeah, a couple of uh, other smaller ones. Bond and Electra, of course, when they're covered by the avalanche, that's similar to the other scene in On Her Majesty's, uh, although Bond doesn't need an inflatable coat in that one. He can somehow, there's just a small covering of snow in uh, On Her Majesty's, and he can get out of uh, it very easily. And uh, I thought the, the tunnel sequence, we get that quite suspenseful. Uh, action sequence where Bond is uh, grabbing the chains and escaping the bomb in the uh, the tunnel network uh, and I thought that was kind of similar to uh, The Spy Who Loved Me where he's on that pulley system uh, and it gets gemmed and he has to kind of pull it a bit harder and get away from the uh, the bomb. I th- apparently Brosnan got injured in that one as well I think he injured his arm because he did part of that stunt uh, himself and of course in the film we see him on fire as he's going through the door as it's closing. So, uh, yeah, a couple of uh, just some lots of little small ones, I thought, in this film. Uh, I don't know if, uh, Adam and Phil, have you got uh, any other ones that you spotted?
3: Uh, No, I was very ready to pounce on the portrait of Bernard Lee had you missed it. Um, It's interesting that that's in sort of a very rugged rural part of Scotland. Um, It'd be interesting to know how far away from the Skyfall estate that is and whether actually Bond and the original M have kind of been neighbours uh, throughout their entire time and so that's why MI6 knew about Bond and his abilities very early on they have been watching him from very close up. Maybe that's why um, Bond and the original M, Bernard Lee have all these sort of suggested hinted adventures which we never really go into like um, the two of them in some kind of bathhouse isn't it in From Russia With Love when uh, M very quickly turns the tape off that's because uh, M was very much a father figure to, the, to Bond before he even joined uh, the same department.
1: Okay, so now we'll head over to... Q Branch. So a special Q Branch this week.
2: Over to you, Phil.
0: Answer my questions quietly, but clearly.
2: Yes, yeah, so this week, um, just prior to recording on Thursday the 10th of September, there was the sad news that um, Dame Diana Rigg uh, passed away at the age of 82. Um, there was a huge outpouring on social media, not just from Bond fans, but from uh, sort of film fans and um, sort of media uh, fans alike um, so we felt this week that it was only right to do um, Hugh Branch as a tribute really to Dame Diana Rigg in terms of uh, her career as an actor um, so we did put a little shout out to Facebook and Twitter just for your um, feedback I'll also ask Adam and Martin their kind of um, thoughts on Diana Rigg as an actor and obviously um, your memories of her in Honor Majesty's Secret Service her kind of role within the the Bond franchise itself. Just to quickly go through um, some of the comments that we had on uh, Facebook. Um, so we had Laurie Brown mentioned that uh, Diana Rigg was actually his favorite Bond girl and he has fond memories because she was from his hometown of Doncaster, so he's, he's always got fond memories of her. Stephen Wells is also very appreciative saying that he loves the appearances of Diana Rigg in the Avengers, obviously um, many people remember her fondly. Um, in her role um, in the TV series alongside Sir Patrick McNee. Adam and Martin, what are you, what will you kind of remember Diana Rigg for in terms of her career? She was kind of one of the leading lights of film and television and theatre in the UK, widely regarded as one of the um, kind of leading actors that the UK has produced. What would what be your memories, do you think?
3: Well, um, I'd urge everyone to go back and check, uh, if you haven't already, our, our episode on on A Majesty's Secret Service, because we sang her praises to the rafters there and, and just how good she is in that film. Um, The key thing, of course, about casting uh, Diana Rigg in On Her Majesty's was that she was there specifically as a classical actress, as an accomplished star of the theatre, to up George Lazenby's game, to bring him up to speed. And so the fact that that relationship works so well, that those characters are so rounded and so believable, has every bit as much to do with Diana Rigg's performance as it is to Peter Hunt's uh, direction, who he helped George Lazenby a lot. But I think the key thing about Diana Rigg is is to say that she's one of very few actors who appeared in Bond films, certainly in the Bond films of the 60s, 70s and 80s, who are bigger than just Bond, you know, Connery did the same thing. A lot of the people who appear in the Bond films kind of are thereafter forever associated with who they played in the Bond films. Diana Rigg through the Avengers was already an icon of Britain in the swinging 60s. And of course, you know, she played every great female role in classical theatre, Mother Courage, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf Martha, uh, Medea apparently she was incredible in, and, and everyone says she was just spellbinding in all of those roles. And it's a shame that you know I, I never got to see her in the theater um so yeah just just one of our finest and i've said before and i'll say again honor Majesty's for me is easily one of the greatest of all the bond films uh, and her performance in that how three-dimensional it is how human it is how powerful it is i think is one of the huge elements as to why that film works so well
1: yeah i think i'd echo those sentiments i think my my general knowledge of films is not great outside of the, uh, the Bond series, so I think I need to go back and perhaps watch some of Dana Rigg's more famous roles, especially The, the Avengers, I'd quite like to uh, take a look at. Uh, but even in more recent stuff, I guess uh, even younger audiences will be more familiar with her in uh, things like Doctor Who she appeared in, and uh, also in Ricky Gervais' comedy Extras. So it kind of showed that she had a lighter side alongside these more serious roles.
3: Wasn't the extra scene when uh, Daniel Radcliffe flicks a condom onto her head and she just very haughtily um, instructs him on how to handle himself uh, around prophylactics. Of course, Game of Thrones also, I mean, right up to the end of her career, she is in the most on-the-button, contemporary, great works of, of, of culture.
0: Thy dawn, O master of the world, thy dawn. For thee the sunlight creeps across the lawn. For
3: thee the ships are drawn down to the waves. For thee the market's throng with myriad slaves For thee the hammer or the anvil rings
2: For thee the poet of beguilement sings. Okay, thanks guys. So that was our Q branch for this week, obviously a little bit different from what we do normally. Obviously, um, please do keep sending in your questions and suggestions um, and also we will try and feature them in the show in future episodes.
1: Okay, so it brings us to the final segment of today's episode. It's over to Adam with the quiz.
2: No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong!
3: Thank you very much, and it's your guys' favourite. The quiz is called No, The World Is Not Huge. It's anagrams! It's anagrams of Bond film titles again. So... We're going to have nine questions, first to five wins. And these are the titles of Bond films that we didn't cover last time. So this could be anything beginning with The Spy Who Loved Me and ending with Tomorrow Never Dies. So it is going to be on the buzzer. Um, Phil and Martin, what would you like as your buzzer sounds this week?
1: I think I'd like to have Brosnan saying stop to Robert King as he... Explodes himself in the MI6 building. I thought that was quite almost Taffin-like. The
2: stop. <laughs> See, I was gonna. Have, yeah, but the trouble is, I was gonna have Q with his stop. It's not finished. Stop!
3: Stop! He didn't finish. Okay, so fingers on the buzzers. Your first anagram is yog needle. Stop! Stop! He didn't finish. EYE. Is correct. First point goes to Phil. Yog needle is goldeneye. Your second anagram. No more arc. Stop! Stop! You didn't
1: finish.
2: Moonraker.
3: Is correct. No more arc is Moonraker. Phil, you go two ahead. Your next one. Stop yo cuss. Ah! Martin.
1: Martin. Your eyes only.
3: Afraid not. I can hand it over. Stop yo cuss. Octopusy Is correct. Three, nothing to fill. Martin, you're going to have to do a bit of a catch-up job here. Your next one is... No wee motor drivers.
2: Stop! Stop! You didn't finish! I'll say tomorrow never dies. Is
3: correct. That brings you to four. It could be a whitewash here. Here's your next Did one. you say you were
1: bad at anagrams, Phil? <laughs> it's like you've got all the answers in front of you. I could say...
2: I'm just very, very lucky today.
3: Okay, this could be the last question, fingers on the buzzers. Run free, soy. YOLO. Stop! Stop! You didn't finish!
2: I said I've got this wrong, actually. I was going to say for your eyes only. It is for your eyes only. Phil wins the
3: anagram <sighs> quiz with an absolute whitewash trouncing. Martin, what went wrong?
1: I'm just poor at anagrams, so I just didn't realise Phil was so good at them today. <laughs>
2: Clearly, this is my forte, James Bond-based anagrams. The
3: one I didn't get to say, which I, I, was my personal favourite, was going to be uh, the Living Daylights anagram, which was Eyeline HGV Lady Ties. But, Phil, well done. That's a convincing win, so you get to pick, of course, our outro music.
1: We'll go with the
2: Avengers theme in honour of Diana Rigg.
1: OK, very nice. So that brings us to a close for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed our review of the world is not enough. Of course, next week we'll be back for Brosnan's final outing as Bond in Die Another Day.
2: This does lead me to the great fan theory that I've come up with myself. Does Christoph Waltz appear in Die Another Day in an early role? I want to find that out for next week. This is my big task.
3: Yes, we will have a look into that in the full anticipation that the answer is no.
2: I'm I'm interested to see if anybody else has picked up on this or whether I'm just completely imagining it I could be there's, there's no right or wrong answer
1: well there is a right or wrong answer Phil and we're going to find out <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're wrong but well the listeners can help us as well <laughs> I
0: love that there's no right or wrong answer well there is
1: <laughs> okay so thanks everyone for joining us we'll see you again next week for Die Another Day In the meantime, do take a look at our social media pages. Of course, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So uh, do give us some likes and follows over there, plus any questions you have for us in a future QBranch segment. So uh, thanks, everyone. I was Martin.
3: I was Adam.
2: And I was Phil. I mean, Wild Wild West might be one of the worst films ever made, I think.
3: Oh, have you never seen Kevin and Perry go large?
2: Yes, I have seen Kevin and Perry go large, but I would wager All I that- want to do is do it. Pickle, pickle. All I want to do is
3: do it. Oh, we know what's playing this podcast out now then, don't we?